0: Good morning and welcome to our worship service. We are so happy that you are here joining us on our recorded worship service. And we eagerly look forward to the day when we can gather together in person and worship our God together. I'm Nathan Boyett, pastor of Outreach and Mission. And today we're gonna to be continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 15, to 39. As you turn in your Bibles or your devices or you read in the worship guide, I'm gonna share a little bit about the context of our passage. Last week, Harrison talked about how Judas and the crowds came to the garden to arrest Jesus and take him to the religious leaders. When Jesus was taken by the crowds to the religious leadership, they sought to falsely accuse Jesus of crimes that he had not committed. Mark's account of Jesus' suffering and death in Mark 14 and 15 is filled with bitter irony. We see the first instance of this irony in Jesus before the religious council. The religious leaders of God's people, the high priests, who are supposed to know the scriptures and teach them to God's people are asking people to lie in court about Jesus. They get a bunch of witnesses to falsely accuse him of crimes that he had not committed. These are the people who are supposed to lead God's people in what is right and good and true. But the false witnesses can't even agree on the lies. So finally, the high priest stood up and asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus replied, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This caused the whole gathering to respond in hate-filled condemnation. They tear their clothes, and they begin to beat Jesus with disdain and hate. Jesus' life, ministry, and his very person call for a response. In this passage we will examine today, we will see various responses to the person and work of Jesus. We will be reading the passage throughout the sermon, so keep track of it in the Bible that you have with you. But first, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it now, that you would help us to see who Jesus is and that he's worthy of our response, that we see the, would see the truth and the beauty of who he is and what he has done on our behalf, and we res- would respond in worship, faith, and true confession. Please be with us now and speak through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis is arguably one of the most influential Christians in the 20th century. He's the author of the beloved Chronicles of Narnia stories, and he also wrote Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters. However, C.S. Lewis, such an influential Christian, was not always a Christian. In fact, for much of his young life, he was an atheist. When he was 17, he wrote to a friend, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. 15 years later, he would write to the same friend on a very different note. Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things, namely the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This change was not a radical Damascus Road conversion like Paul. Rather, it took Lewis all 15 years to change his mind and his viewpoint. What accounted for this radical change? Through reading God's Word and through deep friendships with other Christians, namely J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis encountered Jesus. He learned about Jesus' life, ministry, and death, and C.S. Lewis was forced to respond. C.S. Lewis, writing in the book Surprised by Joy, says you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, oxford night after night feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work the steady unrelenting approach of him whom i so earnestly desired not to meet that which i greatly feared had at last come upon me in 1929 i gave in and admitted that god was god and knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. C.S. Lewis had learned about who Jesus was and he could not do anything but respond in belief, in faith. In the Gospel of Mark, as early as Mark 10, 45, we know Jesus clearly stated that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Throughout his ministry, Jesus kept telling people what he came to do, to save people, and he called people to respond to his message and his life. In John five twenty four, Jesus said, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word "'and believes him who sent me has eternal life. "'He does not come into judgment, "'but has passed from death to life.'" Earlier in his ministry, talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee and an expert of the law, Jesus said in John 3 that he was the son of man who must be lifted up, and whoever believed in him would have eternal life. Jesus called for a response from others. His life, his ministry, his very person encouraged people to believe and respond. Jesus' suffering and death that we see here in Mark 15 are a witness to who he was and what he did for us. And that witness calls us to respond. And so the question that approaches us in this passage today is how shall we respond? The correct response is to believe in the truth, that Jesus is the Son of God that he came to save us from sin by his death. Each of us need to respond in repentance and self-denying discipleship. A scholar writing on Mark 14 and 15, James Edwards, notes that Mark narrates the passion of Jesus as an antiphony between the witness of Jesus and human response to it. Jesus before the Sanhedrin tells them that he is the son of God and they respond in hate-filled condemnation. Peter sees this and responds in fear-filled denial. Pilate sees who Jesus is, sees the turmoil of the crowds and he responds with plotting. And the Roman guards in the crowds see Jesus in his suffering and mock him. But it's only at the foot of the cross that a single individual pagan centurion sees Jesus' death and responds in confession that he's the son of God. So today we're gonna to examine that. We're gonna look at three of these instances of response. First, we're gonna look at plotting Pilate. Second, we're gonna look at the mocking multitudes. And third, we're gonna look at a confessing centurion. First, let's look at plotting Pilate. Read with me in Mark 15, one. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate for Pilate to condemn Jesus to death. And Pilate tries to find a way out for Jesus. He perceives that Jesus is innocent. He sees that the priest's are envious and want Jesus to die. But Jesus does not cooperate with him. Pilate is amazed and confused that the chief priests accused Jesus again and again and Jesus doesn't even respond. As part of the religious holidays, Pilate would often release one prisoner to the crowds. And he tries to release Jesus under this convention. But the religious leaders stir up the crowd against Jesus so that they release, want him to release Barabbas an actual murderer, an actual rebel who had rebelled against the Roman Empire. They ask for Jesus to be crucified, and Pilate is shocked. In verse 14 he questions, why? What evil has this man done? But they shout all the more for Jesus to be crucified. In verse 15 we see that Pilate wants to satisfy the crowds, and so he releases Barabbas and delivers Jesus to be crucified. We again see the bitter irony that Mark uses to show the depths of Jesus' suffering and death. Barabbas, a man rightfully convicted of murder, is released, while an innocent man, Jesus, goes to a murderer's death. In the course of his busy political career and his governing the province of Judea, Pilate is confronted with the person of Jesus. His first response is amazed confusion. Pilate was a governor and so he often took part in judicial proceedings. And it was not unordinary for people who professed their innocence to come before him and for people to hurl accusations. But Jesus does not profess his innocence. He does not say that he should be delivered out of his accuser's hands. We know from the other gospel accounts that Pilate did not want to have Jesus crucified. He did everything he could to get out of it. He sent Jesus to Herod, but Herod sent him back. He had Jesus brutally beaten so that the religious leaders would be satisfied with that punishment. But nothing Pilate did would satisfy them or the leaders or the crowds. They wanted Jesus' blood and death. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea for almost 10 years. He had come to the position uh, because a mentor who hated the Jewish people had put him in that position. And Pilate was known as a greedy, inflexible, cruel, oppressive dictator. In his position as governor of Judea, he treated the Jewish customs with contempt. Pilate's response to Jewish protests was to have protesters beaten by soldiers dressed in normal clothes. And all of his protests had caused rebellion to be fermented within the province of Judea. Judea was a recent Roman province, and so there were still many rebellious thoughts in the minds of the citizens there. And so Pilate was kind of on hot ground with his supervisors because they did not like the protests. Pilate was in an increasingly desperate situation. He was a governor of this new Roman province that was boiling with rebellious threats. He was normally a cruel and oppressive man when it benefited him, but here he was under threat of losing his position because of past blunders that caused rebellion. We read in John 19 that the crowd shouted towards Pilate, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Confronted with these crowds and the threat of rebellion, Pilate does the politically and socially expedient thing. He delivers Jesus, a man he knows to be innocent, over to be crucified. Pilate's final response To Jesus was one of plotting and social manipulation and maneuvering, trying to make the best of the situation. The unfortunate reality is that people throughout the ages have done this, even those who claim the name of Christ. They have used Jesus and his message for their own benefit. Non-Christians often look at the history of Christianity and they see how it has been used to do horrific things, and they are not wrong. People claiming to believe Christianity have utilized Christ to oppress and colonize people. The history of missions in China is tarnished by worldly plotting. Missionaries sat silent or even helped British trading companies while those companies sold the drug opium to the Chinese people. You see, the British trading companies wanted the Chinese empire to open their doors to all of the trade that they could do. But China did not want to do that. In order to get that Treaty approved, the British company undermined the Chinese Empire by selling opium to the Chinese people. And missionaries sat silent or even helped translate for these British trading companies in order to do this. Why? It was done in order to force China to open the territory for trading and also open the territory for missionaries. This is not the way of Christ. This is the way of the world, plotting to get your own way this is not what Christ would have wanted his followers to do. And it shows in the legacy of distrust and animosity towards the foreign religion of Christianity that still exists among some Chinese people and especially among the Chinese Communist Party. But God's kingdom will not be advanced by plotting and maneuvering. Pilate responded to Jesus with social maneuvering and plotting. He used Jesus' predicament for his benefit. We often respond to Jesus and his call in a way that evaluates, how does this benefit me? We question, how does this situation, how can I turn it for my own benefit? Instead of plotting and social maneuvering, our response should be one of faith. Christ died to save us from our sins that we might live sacrificially towards others. We were made for a relationship with God and a relationship with other people and we have been saved to live in a sacrificial relationship towards other. Christ calls us to a radical other-centered life. Through his salvation, we have been transformed and can live for others. Our neighbors, our children, our spouses, even those who consider us to be their enemies. This is profoundly countercultural. In Pilate's day and in ours, it is only natural, only natural to seek our success, our comfort, our benefit but that is not what Christ calls us to. As we turn from the plotting pilot, we see that the multitudes who were there as Jesus was beaten and crucified mock Jesus as it happens. Look with me in Mark fifteen sixteen, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In these verses, we see that the soldiers and the crowds mock Jesus as he's dying on the cross The soldiers mockingly clothe him in royal robes and put a crown of thorns on him and then mockingly pretend he's a king, bowing down before him, before they hit him and spit on him. Then they lead him to Golgotha and crucify him. And we see the depths of the guards disregard for Jesus' humanity as Jesus is hanging on the cross and they are at the foot of the cross, dividing his clothes among them. Beginning in verse 29, The crowds join the mockery when they deride him, wagging their heads and mocking him, saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple, you who said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. And the mockery spreads to the chief priests as well, as they mockingly say, You're going to save yourself, or you saved others, why don't you save yourself? If you would come down from the cross, we would believe in you. We see the irony in Mark's account again here the crowds and the priests mock Jesus for not saving himself, while not understanding that the reason he doesn't save himself is so that they might be saved from their sins. In this passage, we see the mockery and derision build up in a crescendo. First, it starts with the guards, and then the crowds join in, and finally the chief priests, and then at the end, the two robbers who are being crucified next to him, mock him and revile him. We're all familiar with mockery to varying degrees. We've probably experienced it since we were children playing on the playground. It may start out playful, teasing for a unique characteristic or even normal things children sometimes make fun of. But playful teasing too often goes into vicious, brutal mockery. We only have to look to the comments section of any news article to see that our society loves vicious, bullying mockery of others who we disagree with or are different from us. There's something in our sinful, broken human hearts that delights to see other people hurt. And there's something in our sinful human hearts that delights when God's way is mocked. In our present times, there are two groups who mock Jesus. First, there are those who do not believe in him. And second, there are those of us who are Christians who believe in him, but mock him by our disregard and our cavalier attitude towards sin first in all times there have been people who mock the message of christianity too often humanity's attitude towards jesus and his message is mockery finding it laughable detestable even atheist christopher hitchens wrote about christianity i suppose one reason that i've always detested religion is its sly tendency to insinuate that the universe is designed with you in mind or even worse that there is a divine plan to which one fits whether one knows it or not. This kind of modesty is too arrogant for me. Hitchens hears the message of Christianity, the message that we value and find such comfort and hope in, and he just finds it detestable, laughable, arrogant. Unfortunately, many find the message of Christianity worthy of mocking because of how Christians act. In a recent newspaper article on The Atlantic, Jonathan Merritt, a Christian himself, writes about how Christian responses to the coronavirus has caused people to find Christianity laughable, confusing, unbelievable. Christians, some people claiming to be Christians, have blamed the coronavirus on humanity's sin, on America's sin, saying that it's a judgment that has come upon America. And others who are not Christians look on to this in confusion, mockery, and even hurt. He writes, COVID-19 has claimed nearly 50,000 lives in America thus far. Most of those casualties died alone, without so much as the dignity of a familiar face as they drifted into eternal rest. Most of those who have died are grandparents and the immunocompromised, the weakest among us. We are grief-stricken and disillusioned people. Like many others, I'm struggling to make sense of how those who follow the teachings of Jesus, known for healing the sick, could shrug their shoulders at mass death and heap pain on the grieving. This kind of stark self-righteous insensitivity makes non-religious people despise Christians. Too often, we as Christians have an insensitive, uncaring attitude towards the world instead of the attitude that Christ had. And that causes our Savior and his message to be mocked. Second, we who are Christians sometimes mock Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf. When we don't take sin seriously, when we reject his grace by returning to sin again, even after we've been saved from it, we mock him. In Galatians 6, Paul tells his readers to bear one another's burdens in love as Christ loved us. And then he writes in 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Paul tells us to not make light of our sin, to not mock God by continuing in sin after we have been saved. Too often we make light of our sin. We don't treat it as something serious for which Christ died. We blame shift, we play the victim, we minimize our sins. We hide it, we laugh it off as a joke. When we make light of our sin, we mock Christ and his death which was necessary to save us. Through his life and death, Jesus calls us to follow him, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, kill our sin, so that we might live in righteousness, which we can now that he has saved us. When we don't really follow him, we mock him. As we turn from the mocking multitudes, as we turn from plotting Pilate, we see in this account that there's only one person who recognizes Jesus and the beauty of what he did on the cross. And that's a lone pagan centurion who confesses. Follow me. Follow with me in Mark fifteen thirty three. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani," which means, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And some of the bystanders hearing it said, "Behold, he is calling Elijah." And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. In this verses we see the culmination of Jesus' suffering, and death on the cross. Mark accounts how when Jesus died, the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the people of God was torn in two, symbolizing that now we can come into God's presence without the need for an intermediary priest, without the need of the sacrifice of animals. Through this, we are now right with God. Through Jesus' death, we are now right with God. And it's important to note how Mark records that when Jesus cried out and breathed his last, The centurion watching cannot do anything but exclaim, truly this man was the Son of God. This watching Roman soldier sees Jesus dying, and unlike the earlier watching mocking crowds, the Roman soldier sees and believes. Son of God is significant in Mark because it's a Christological title that Mark uses very rarely. And only here in the whole gospel does a human being confess that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a pagan Gentile at the foot of cross who speaks this truth of who Jesus is. We see here the culmination of Mark's irony surrounding Jesus' death. Who is it that sees Jesus and responds with truthful confession? It's not the disciple who followed Jesus for three years. It's not the religious leaders who knew the scriptures front and back. It's not even the Roman elite, the socially secure person. No. It's a man standing at the foot of the cross, standing at the foot of an implement of execution, who sees Jesus' death and believes and confesses. Mark is telling us here that it's not our position, it's not our background, it's not even our knowledge with which we can come to God. It's merely the confession that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. Confronted with Jesus, we also must respond His life, his ministry, his death should cause us to recognize him for who he is, the son of God who died for us and therefore our Lord and Savior. If we go back to verse 20 again for a moment, we can see the way that Mark subtly hints of how we should respond. In verse 20, it says, they, the Roman soldiers, led Jesus out to crucify him. And then immediately in verse 21, it says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. James Edwards, a scholar writing on Mark notes, the mention of Simon immediately following the mention of crucifixion in verse 20, reinforces the most indispensable and distinguishable mark of discipleship, taking up one's cross and following Jesus. For Mark, discipleship is not a symbolic gesture but it's concretely following jesus earlier in mark in chapter 8 verse 34 jesus wrote if anyone would jesus said if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me that is what his discipleship is that's the appropriate response to jesus's life and death to take up our cross deny ourselves and follow jesus While we're on verse 21, it's interesting to note that Mark talks about three people here, Simon of Cyrene, Alexander, and Rufus. Mark never records names for no reasons. Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16, 13 as an important member of the Roman church, and the Gospel of Mark was written specifically for the Roman church. We can speculate that Simon, Alexander, and Rufus were radically changed by what they witnessed and became Christians, and we know at least that Rufus was a member of the Roman church. We also should be radically changed, but by what we read here that Jesus did for us, the response which Jesus' suffering and death demands is a response of confession of the truth, belief in who Jesus is, and a response of discipleship, commitment, and following Jesus. C.S. Lewis, again, uh, was completely transformed when he realized who Jesus was, and he lived a life of discipleship. And in one of his great books, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uh, used a very famous argument about how people should see who Jesus is and then respond. It's called the trilemma. He says that when you see Jesus, when you read about him and you hear his words and see his life, you can only have three options of who he is. He's either a liar He's either a lunatic or he's Lord. Either Jesus is a liar and he's not who he said he was. Or he's a lunatic, he's crazy. Or he's Lord and we should believe in him. If he's a liar and what he said is not true, then why should we bother believing at all? Or even thinking about him at all? If he's a lunatic, if he's crazy, then why should we bother thinking about him at all either? But if he's Lord, then we should see and believe and respond in faith. So I challenge and encourage you, if you are not a Christian, read the Gospels, read the Gospel account of Mark, and see who Jesus is. As you read them, he will jump vividly off the page. See who he is and respond. Dr. Hans Beyer, one of my favorite professors in seminary, uh, is somebody who writes much about the Gospel of Mark, and he says that Jesus leads his followers in the Gospel of Mark through a process of discipleship that causes them to have a double crisis of self-perception and God-perception. A double crisis of self-perception and God-perception. Jesus led the disciples through a process that caused them to wrestle with two questions. Who is God and who am I? And that's the questions that each one of us needs to ask. Who am I and who is God? Who am I? What does Jesus say about who I am? He says that I am created in God's image, that I was made by God for a relationship with him and a relationship with other people, but sin has shattered me and broken me so that I am in need of rescue. Who is God? Jesus has revealed God the Father to us, a God of infinite love, compassion, mercy, and grace, a God who came to die in our place so that we might be restored to those right relationships we were created for. When we have that double crisis of self-perception and God-perception, we should respond in faith to who God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And when we respond, our lives are to be wholehearted transformation. He calls us to self-denying discipleship. His response is possible because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. He took our place. He became sin and gave us Righteousness. And we are now in Him, united to Him. So the Father sees Jesus' holiness when He looks at us and loves us and delights in us. And as a result, through the Spirit, we can now walk in a manner that pleases God, loving Him and loving our neighbors, ourselves. We no longer have to plot like Pilate. We no longer have to mock God's way and God's creations, God's people, other people. We can live in love, which God created us for, Jesus died on the cross in each of our places. He suffered the mockery, the painful punishment, the separation from God that our sins deserved, each one of us. And he did all of that so we might be restored to a right relationship with the Father. And each one of us is called to respond to that. We are called to respond not only once in faith, we're called also to respond daily in self-denial taking up our cross and following him in love towards others. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you have given us your word that we might know who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth knowing well that you would die on the cross, that you would be used and abused and mocked, and you did it so that we might be restored to a relationship with the Father and to one another. Thank you that you took our sins and died in our place. Thank you that we can respond in faith and be restored to a right relationship with you. Thank you so much that we can now live lives that are pleasing to you through your grace. You have saved us for a purpose to be transformed and to take up our crosses daily by living in sacrificial, other-centered love. Please help us to do that as we go out from here today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.